In the United States, non-invasive prenatal tests has become the norm and is used for screening for trisomies 21, 18, and 13, and potentially some sex chromosome aneuploidies and some microdeletions. However, the use of soft markers may increase the positive predictive value in patients with other screening tests like first trimester combination screening. Remember, this is a combination of maternal age, biochemical screening tests of free beta HCG and PAP-A, and nuchal translucency. In the past several decades, ultrasound screening during the second trimester to identify fetal anomalies has developed and improved remarkably. Some sonographic findings are structural signs with little or no pathological significance, and these are commonly known as soft markers. Generally studied soft markers include fetal ventriculomegaly, choroid plexus cysts, absent or hypoplastic nasal bone, and thickened nuchal fold. Other soft markers include the intracardiac echogenic focus, echogenic bowel, short long bones, pileactasis, and a single umbilical artery. Soft markers are common and they are not usually associated with any handicaps unless there is an associated chromosomal abnormality. Fetuses with structural abnormalities by ultrasound should be offered diagnostic testing with chromosomal microarray because there's a substantial risk that a chromosomal abnormality other than 21, 18, and 13 is present and that's not likely to be detected by a non-invasive prenatal test. Soft markers, especially if multiple, can be associated with an increased risk of congenital anomalies and preterm birth, as well as aneuploidy. So in this podcast, we're going to review the essential information for parents and also to get you ready for your oral boards that takes a look at soft markers in the setting of either isolation multiple present, and what do we do with those when the patient has had a previously negative, non-invasive prenatal test? The information for this podcast comes from the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine and the AIUM, the American Institute of Ultrasound in Medicine. As soft markers were introduced as markers for aneuploidy, specifically in high-risk populations, there's been efforts to clarify their significance after a normal first-trimester screen or non-invasive prenatal test. In this otherwise low-risk population, soft markers were found in about 6% of fetuses at second-trimester ultrasound. These markers were isolated in about 5% of the cases. They were multiple in 0.7% and combined with anomalies in 0.1%. According to the college, diagnostic testing should not be recommended to patients who have a single, isolated soft marker in the setting of a negative non-invasive prenatal test. Also, looking for soft markers of trisomy 21 should not be performed in women with a normal non-invasive prenatal test result due to its high false positive rate and poor positive predictive value. Nonetheless, soft markers can be important because certain ones, like ventriculomegaly, may be associated with poor neurodevelopmental outcome. Additionally, other findings like the echogenic bowel has actually been linked to growth restriction and an increased risk of intrauterine fetal demise. 
So in this podcast, we're going to specifically dive into these soft markers, but because there are multiple, we're only going to do a few in this session. In session two, we'll cover the rest. Specifically, in this first part, we will cover ventriculomegaly, the choroid plexus cyst, the absent or hypoplastic nasal bone, and the thickened nuchal fold. Let's start our review with ventriculomegaly. Fetal ventriculomegaly is defined as dilation of the lateral ventricle atrium to a width of 10 millimeters or more. A measurement of 10 to 12 is considered mild, measurements of 12 to 15 are considered moderate, and measurements of greater than 15 millimeters are considered severe. Ventriculomegaly has been associated with normal variants, aneuploidy, certain genetic syndromes, primary brain abnormalities, congenital infection like with CMV and toxo, and even cerebrovascular accidents and fetal intracranial hemorrhage. Mild and moderate ventriculomegaly tend to regress or to stay stable over time, whereas those who have severe ventriculomegaly tend to stay constant or increase in size. The prevalence of neurodevelopmental delay in cases of apparently isolated unilateral mild or moderate ventriculomegaly is about 6%, but in severe ventriculomegaly, it can be 7 to 8%, again, when it's isolated and unilateral. High rates of cerebral palsy, seizures, and impaired motor capabilities have been observed in cases of severe ventriculomegaly, even when it's isolated and unilateral. The prevalence of neurodevelopmental delay when it's bilateral, mild, and moderate ventriculomegaly is higher and it ranges between 8% and 12%. Magnetic resonance imaging can be used for further elucidation of cases of ventricular enlargement. The overall prognosis of ventriculomegaly strongly depends on both the extent of enlargement and or the presence of other abnormal findings or structural abnormalities. Also, asymmetric patterns of ventriculomegaly is a potential risk factor for anomalies of neuropsychological development. Screening for congenital infection should be part of the workup, especially ventriculomegaly with increased periventricular echogenicity, calcifications, periventricular pseudocysts, and intraventricular synechiae are found. Diagnosis of toxo and CMV infection is based on positive specific IgM antibody results in the mother with confirmatory immunoglobulin G avidity tests. Now, in case of a positive test for toxo infection in the maternal serum, amniocentesis is performed to determine the presence of the pathogen in the amniotic fluid by amplification of DNA. This is done using PCR. Here's another clinical pearl. It's important to have repeat ultrasound scans to follow the ventriculomegaly size or extension because it is correlated with subsequent prognosis. Okay, now that we've covered ventriculomegaly, let's talk about choroid plexus cyst. CPC, or choroid plexus cyst, is a small sonographically discrete fluid-filled space greater than 5 millimeters within the choroid plexus, and CPC is seen as black echo-free areas. CPC is found in about 2-4% to of fetuses at 16-24 to weeks, usually as an isolated finding in otherwise normal low-risk pregnancies. CPC typically regresses by 23 weeks regardless of karyotype, so that's a clinical pearl. 
there is an association between choroid plexus cysts and chromosomal defects, particularly trisomy 18. However, the majority of fetuses with trisomy 18 have multiple other defects. Risks of amnio is not justified, according to SMFM, if the choroid plexus cyst is an isolated finding and amnio is only acceptable if other major anomalies are present. Women with isolated choroid plexus cysts and negative first trimester screen or non-invasive prenatal test, the findings of choroid plexus cysts may be described as not clinically significant or as a normal variant. Again, in women that have an isolated CPC and negative NIPS or negative first trimester screen, the finding of a choroid plexus cyst can be considered a normal variant. Choroid plexus cyst is not considered a structural nor functional brain abnormality. Isolated choroid plexus cysts in fetuses with normal karyotypes thankfully do not affect child mental or motor development after birth. All right, podcast family, when we come back, let's cover the absent or hypoplastic nasal bone. Absent or hypoplastic nasal bone, defined as a nasal bone that's not visible in the first trimester or that has a length of less than 2.5 millimeters in the mid-sagittal section of the fetal profile in the second trimester. However, it's important to remember that there may be some ethnic or racial differences here. For example, it has been published that Korean fetuses may have shorter nasal bones without any real consequence. It has been published nonetheless that up to 73% of trisomy 21 fetuses can have an absent or hypoplastic nasal bone visible at the 11 to 14 week scan. First trimester screening for trisomy 21 based on maternal age and fetal nuchal translucency detects about 70% of abnormal fetuses with a 3% false positive rate. However, with the additional finding of the hypoplastic or absent nasal bone, the detection rate in the first trimester goes to about 80%, but it still carries the same false positive rate of 3%. Now, here's another clinical pearl. It has been estimated that between 0.5% to 2.8% of euploid fetuses will have images consistent with delayed ossification of the nasal bone in either the first or second trimester. The absence of a fetal nasal bone does warrant a detailed evaluation of fetal anatomy. If there are no other abnormalities and there's a normal karyotype, it's reasonable to assure the parents that this is considered a normal variant and can carry a very good neonatal outcome. However, case reports have described an absent fetal nasal bone in B-cell immunodeficiency and even in Creduchat syndrome. So it's important to consider these cases and it can be offered to the patients to have microarray studies performed in addition to a fetal karyotype when an absent fetal nasal bone occurs and there are additional sonographic abnormalities. Once again, remember that according to SMFM and the college, microarray analysis is much more sensitive than standard carrier type, especially when there are structural abnormalities or more than one ultrasound soft mark. 
All right, next let's cover the thickened nuchal fold. Thickened nuchal fold is defined as thickening of the skin and the subcutaneous tissues on the posterior aspect of the fetal neck, measuring six millimeters or greater before 20 weeks and six days. Thickened nuchal fold in the second trimester has been published as the most important soft marker in the detection of Down syndrome among fetuses who had normal first trimester ultrasound screening for aneuploidy. But what about those who have other types of screens that are negative, like non-invasive prenatal tests? Well, there is some controversy with this, with some guidelines stating that diagnostic testing in the setting of a negative non-invasive prenatal test with an isolated soft marker like a thickened nuchal fold is not recommended. However, some do recommend karyotyping in all patients with thickened nuchal fold that's found in the first trimester and carries over to the second trimester. Some recent data has indicated a positive association between nuchal fold measurement and congenital heart defects with reported adjusted odds ratio of up to 15. One in every 23 pregnancies with a nuchal fold measurement greater than 5 millimeters had a congenital heart disease state in some published reviews. So, a targeted ultrasound with particular attention to the fetal heart is reasonable when a thickened nuchal fold is identified after normal fetal karyotyping. All right, now that we've covered those soft markers, I know I said I would stop there, but I just can't help myself. Let's cover echogenic bowel, specifically because new data has come to light that even though it may be an isolated finding, it can be associated with some pretty poor obstetrical outcomes. Echogenic bowel is defined as fetal bowel of similar or greater echogenicity than the surrounding bone or fetal liver. Two-thirds of them were detected during the first and second trimesters with a prevalence ranging from 0.2% to 2%. Echogenic bowel resolves spontaneously in about 20% of cases and the association with Down syndrome has been with an odds ratio of anywhere from 5 to 7 Echogenic bowel has also been described as a normal variant, but it also can be associated with congenital viral infections, particularly CMV. It's also associated with aneuploidy, intra-abdominal bleeding, severe uroplacental insufficiency, meconium peritonitis, cystic fibrosis, anemia, and fetal growth restriction. So, in addition to a detailed anatomical survey of the fetus, CMV infection testing and, of course, aneuploidy screening should be considered. Studies advocate serial fetal growth assessment when isolated echogenic bowel has been detected in the first or second trimester because it's associated with fetal growth restriction and an increase in intrauterine fetal demise. The relative risk for IUGR is 1.6, but is up to 9 for intrauterine fetal demise. If echogenic bowel was detected during the third trimester, the likelihood of postnatal surgical intervention for intestinal abnormalities is significantly increased. So that's a clinical pearl. If echogenic bowel is a late finding and wasn't present in the first and second, but it is in the third trimester, it raises the risk of postnatal surgical intervention and it's important to let the pediatric team know about this finding. However, in other reports, it has provided more reassurance that there's been no evidence of any serious long-term bowel disease associated with the isolated fetal echogenic bowel, specifically when it's found in the first or second trimester.
All right, podcast family, we still have the intracardiac echogenic focus, the shortened humerus length and femur length, fetal pileectasis, and single umbilical artery. But we're going to cover that in the second part of this Soft Markers of Aneuploidy podcast. Thanks for being part of our listening family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. Thank you.